Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This episode is about my country's attempt to leave one of the deepest trade agreements in the world. Oh yeah, it's Brexit. Now, while I'm normally based in London, for this episode, I went to Cambridge to talk to Professor Meredith Crowley of the University of Cambridge. Meredith's been looking into the question of which sectors are most exposed to a hard Brexit. So that's if Britain crashed out without a deal and had to rely on World Trade Organization rules. But before we get into that, here's just a quick recap of where we are now in the Brexit talks. So we're out of phase one, which is the divorce, and we're into phase two, which is transition and trade. So essentially, broadly, Britain has agreed with the EU, the terms under which it will leave. And now it's time to work out a transitional arrangement. There just isn't time to agree a full bespoke trade deal in the few months that they have left. So it's all about the transition. But the risk of the UK leaving in a disorderly way, this hard Brexit, hasn't really gone away. Something could still go wrong. Which is why Meredith's question is really interesting. Who would lose the most? Which sectors are most exposed? A lot of people thought the British government was asking these questions. So in October of 2017, the Brexit secretary, David Davis, was talking about 57 sets of sectoral analyses on the impact of Brexit on the UK economy. Mysteriously, though, he was pretty reluctant to publish these analyses, and these secret impact assessments became the talk of Twitter. Here's David Davis being grilled on just what is going on. Just to be clear, has the government undertaken any impact assessments on the implications of leaving the EU for different sectors of the... Not in sectors. I think the, nothing, there's, there's, no, there's no sort of systematic uh, uh, impact assessment. So the, the answer to the question no. is no. Yeah. So the government hasn't undertaken any impact assessments no. on the implications for leaving, of leaving the EU for different sectors of the British economy. Mm. Um, so there isn't one, for example, on the automotive sector? On the automotive no, sector? No, not I'm aware of, no. Is there one on aerospace? Not I'm aware of, no. no. One on financial services? Well, I think the answer's going to be no to all of them. No to all of them, <laughs> right. <laughs> to be fair to the government... They were drawing a distinction between impact assessments and sectoral analyses. They're very different, you see. Here's David Davis, the Brexit secretary, again. You don't need to do an impact assessment, a formal impact assessment, to understand that if there is a regulatory hurdle between our producers and a market, that it will have an impact, it will have an effect. Um, The assessment of that effect, I think I've said to you before, is not as straightforward as people imagine. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of economic models because they have all proven wrong. As an early Christmas present on December the 21st, the government published 39 sectoral reports. So over the holidays, I read some of these, and one of my favorite was about the gambling sector. I learned about the importance of the free movement of people to jockeys and stable hands, and the exemption to state aid rules that allow Britain, France, and Germany to impose a horse race gambling tax and then to redirect some of that cash back to the industry itself. These reports had quite a lot of piecemeal information. They were very descriptive and useful and interesting. And there were some reports that some bits may have been informed by Wikipedia. And there is no shame in that. That's great. But it was hard to get a handle on who was most vulnerable without reading all 39 of them. And even then, it's just not that clear. 
to be fair to the government, there really hasn't been that much sectoral analysis considering everything together by economists, certainly not until very recently, which is where Meredith comes in. Meredith, hello. Hello. How have you been thinking about measuring the impact of a hard Brexit on different sectors? So what's your approach? Our starting point for our analysis is that if the UK and EU aren't able to negotiate a deal over what their future trade relationship is going to be, then because they're both WTO members, their relationship is going to change to look like that that the EU has with, say, the US. And so what we do is we look at the value of UK exports for 5,000 really detailed individual products. So different types of cars, food products, industrial chemicals, basically every single thing that the UK exports. And we sort them into tariff categories within the sector. And then we add up the value by each of these tariff categories to get a measure of how exposed different sectors are to different levels of tariff. How much of the transportation sector is subject to say, a a pretty high tariff of 10% or more. And just to clarify, you look at goods. You don't look at services. They're not included in your analysis. Yes, that's correct. So we don't do any work with services. Their measurement's a little bit more complicated. Okay, so focusing on goods, what's the answer? Which UK sectors export the most to the EU? The most important export goods for the United Kingdom are the transportation equipment sector, so things like cars and airplanes. The value of that's about 30 billion pounds. Then we also have machinery, similarly a value of a little bit more than 30 billion pounds. Chemicals, which also includes pharmaceuticals, which is an important industry here, that's about 30 billion pounds. And then fuel, so oil, gas, that's about 24 billion pounds. Are these high export sectors also the sectors that are most exposed to tariffs from the EU? Yes. So if we just restrict ourselves to looking at the regular WTO tariffs and the types of quotas the UK could potentially face, we estimate that about 15% of UK exports to the EU are at risk of facing tariffs of 10% or more. Happier news for the UK is that even if they end up with no deal, about one third of total UK exports to the EU will still enter duty free. Then we have in the middle, we have some sectors where there are some smaller value tariffs but these are not entirely inconsequential. For example, in the machinery sector, there's a lot of products that face these very moderate tariffs of 4% or 6.5%. But one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we think about some of these products is although many of these tariffs are pretty low, many of these products go into making bigger products. So one concrete example, if we look at chemicals, the tariff on something called ethylene polymers is six and a half percent. Now this is a type of plastic that goes into making plastic bottles and plastic film on on food. Now the tariff on plastic films and bottles is also six and a half percent. If a UK firm were to export this raw plastic to the EU, and in the EU it was semi-processed into a factory into a more refined good, and then that plastic came back and the UK made it into a bottle that it wanted to then sell in France, that French plastic bottle would face two tariffs. First, when the raw plastic went from the UK company to a a European factory, and then a second time when the finished plastic bottle went from the UK to France. And so this is one of the concerns is even these small tariffs can add up by round tripping again and again, and that raises the ultimate price of the good. So in your empirical analysis then, where do the most extreme threats seem to come in? The most concerning industry is transport equipment. 
we estimate that about 18 billion pounds worth of transportation equipment is at risk of medium or high tariffs. So there's lots of different types of cars that the UK exports to the EU that face tariffs of 10%. And when we get to big lorries, so big uh, trucks that move stuff around, the tariffs are even higher. They're more than 15%. Another part of this is that diesel engines that get put into these cars, they face a much lower tariff. It's only about 4%. But if these diesel engines have to cross borders multiple times as they're getting fully developed, you're going to face that small tariff again and again, and the cost adds up. It should alarm Brexit watchers that the transport sector is so exposed just because of how important the sector is for the UK economy. And, and also it's sort of this exporting crown jewel. The, the automotive sector, according to the government's sectoral analysis, it created 0.8% of total UK value added. Um, it's also very export intensive. So almost half of that sector's exports in 2016 were to the EU. This is a sector that is, you know, it's very connected to the continent and therefore particularly prone to disruption. What about agriculture? You haven't mentioned that yet. In terms of the total value of agricultural exports to the EU, it's not nearly as large as it is for transportation equipment, industrial chemicals. So it's a much smaller sector, but we know a lot less about what the future could bring. And that's because trade in agricultural goods is governed by quotas, and specifically tariff rate quotas. That is a rule that the country would have, which says the first 100 million metric tons of grain can enter at a tariff rate of, for example, 7%, but the second 200 million metric tons of grain to enter the country would pay a higher tariff of, for example, 15%. And that second tariff would be prohibitively high? Yes. The agricultural goods covered by quotas are mainly meat products like ham and bacon that the UK exports to, to the EU, as well as cereal grains, wheat, maize, oats it's going to be complicated for the EU and the UK to set up their quotas for imports from one another. And so we don't know what that could bring. And here the issue is different from the other products because there is no WTO tariff. So there's no default that if no deal is reached, what that outside option would be. This is kind of undefined. And I suppose what happens when these rules are undefined is that if they can't agree, then countries will just do it unilaterally. And then if another country is unhappy, then they'll sue, right? And this, this ultimately could end up as some kind of dispute at the World Trade Organization. Chad, is that right? Yes, we have lots of history of WTO disputes, especially over agricultural products. Do you consider any other trade-related risks? Yes. So the other big source of risk for the United Kingdom has to do with special types of tariffs called anti-dumping duties as well as anti-subsidy duties. So these are different from the tariffs under the WTO rules that we've been talking about so far. Okay, so anti-dumping duties. So these are things that, you know, when the UK was in the EU, they wouldn't dream of putting anti-dumping duties on, on UK exports. It's a single market. You wouldn't defend against someone who's in your own team. And also, rather than having these anti-subsidy duties, they had rules on state aid. So there are laws embedded in the European Union that say that you're just not allowed to subsidize specific industries. The EU was, has been, over the last 20 or 30 years, one of the most prolific users of these types of special import restrictions. And there are actually two risks that, that the UK faces. 
firstly, in the past, the UK is a more liberal, pro-free trade state, has discouraged the EU from, to some extent, using these types of special import restrictions. In the past, you know, one of the complaints against David Cameron was that he was urging the EU, EU not to impose anti-dumping duties on steel, even though the steel industry in the UK was suffering. With the loss of the UK in the EU, that could unleash these sort of more protectionist groups who would seek greater anti-dumping protection. The other point is just over, you know, in the last 20 years, 8% of the products that the EU has imported have faced anti-dumping duties. And these have been imposed not only on low-income and medium-income countries like China, but also on high-income trading partners like the United States, Australia, and Japan. So there's a real risk that the UK could face these in products like steel, where the price has gone down a lot, and European firms face a lot of intense competitive pressure. And if you try to measure the exposure to tariffs when you consider these anti-dumping duties and countervailing duties, how does the exposure level change? So when we increase the exposure level to take into account the risk of facing these higher anti-dumping and anti-subsidy duties, we suddenly say that over one quarter of UK exports to the EU could be at risk of very high tariffs. Well, that's a big change. That's an almost doubling of the share that could be exposed to these higher tariffs when you take into account these duties. So so which which UK sectors should be sweating the most, worrying about these defensive duties? Well, so recently the EU has been active in one of the UK's environmentally friendly exports, biodiesel. So that's something that could face a tariff going forward. Another product is generally steel has been subject to a lot of anti-dumping duties, and so there's a risk in the steel sector. Is this really a credible threat? I mean, can, can the UK really expect to be hit with similar tariffs to what China has been facing? Well, already the UK is facing import restrictions on steel or threats of import restrictions on steel in the United States. So the US is trying to impose tariffs on Tata steel manufactured in Wales. So this is a problem among high-income countries. Yeah, and also from the government's sector report for the steel and metals industry, the UK exports nearly 50% of their overall steel production, and about three-quarters of that actually goes to the EU. So this is another one of these sectors that's very, very dependent on what the future relationship is going to look like. So Meredith, what can we say from your results about the nature of the industries that are going to be exposed to these high-risk tariffs and other trade barriers? What do we know about the jobs or where they're located? Who's going to be affected by this? The products that are at the greatest risk are primarily high-skilled and technologically advanced manufactured products. So transportation equipment, sophisticated machinery, communications equipment. In terms of the geographical concentration, for example, we know that autos are spread out throughout the north of England. So the northwest, the northeast, and the midlands have a lot of employment in that industry. And so that can be quite devastating when you have a big change in a particularly concentrated industry because it spills over outside the industry to other industries that support it. More generally, this is something that we know about manufacturing and and exported manufacturing, that it does tend to be very geographically concentrated, right? Yes. When we look at the United States, we see that there are very negative impacts in some areas that have been particularly concentrated in certain types of manufactured goods. 
So a negative trade shock, for example, caused by increased imports from China have led to a large amount of employment loss in a particular region or particular tight city. And that, I suppose, is because these manufacturing hubs tend to operate in clusters. And so if they go down, then everyone in that locality goes down with them. Yeah, that's the case. We certainly see that in the United States. Your analysis describes numerically which goods exports of the UK are most exposed to trade restrictions from the EU in event of a hard Brexit. But there's quite a leap from that to a kind of very full picture of the potential impact of these industries on a hard Brexit. There are a few steps that we would still have to do. Could you talk about those? Yes. So the analysis we've done is primarily a measurement exercise, and it's quite simple. And it's the first step in a fuller economic analysis to understand what the impact would be on different sectors. So if we want to understand the impact on different sectors, we start with the tariff that we'll face in the future and the value of the trade flow. And what we need to understand and calculate is how much an increase in the tariff is going to cause British exports in a particular sector to fall. Some products are very sensitive to small tariff increases. Others are quite insensitive. So sensitive products tend to be things, for example, like automobiles, where the firm has a lot of market power and expensive high-priced goods. So we would expect that a big increase in the tariff would cause European consumers to purchase fewer British-produced cars. This would cause the output of the car sector to fall. So that's one step in the sectoral analysis. We then want to expand it and take it backward to look at the linkages between the auto producer in Britain and the supporting industries that feed into that. So that would be the next step in a fuller general equilibrium analysis where we then look at the auto manufacturer uses services like legal services and trucking and logistical services. Those would decline as their output declines. At the same time, all the parts they need to make that car or truck demand for those goods would also decline. We add all of these up and that gives us a complete picture of the economy. And this is a very standard technique that economists have been doing. Okay, so I'm just going to stop you there. This sounds suspiciously like one of those model-based impact assessments that David Davis was so suspicious of. He says that models always get it wrong. Why should we rely on them? Well, so economic models give us a very clear picture of where things are going. There's certainly times when they perform less well, but at a first pass, we can clearly understand what's the impact on production and then what are some of the backward linkages. And so this is a baseline from which to start, and it alerts us to some sectors are much more at risk, they're much more vulnerable, and they can have bigger impacts, and allows us to plan. Like, if we need to think about moving people into new types of employment opportunities, we need to know what jobs are going to be lost. Is there any reason to think that these models might even understate the impact of these tariffs? Yeah, so I think one of the important lessons that we can think about is what we learned in the United States when the United States had a very restrictive import regime for automobiles. So in the early 1980s, the U.S. essentially raised barriers on imports of autos from Japan. So this is essentially, if we're in the U.K., it's like looking at the U.K., looking at the EU, raising the tariff on autos. What happened there, the first thing was American consumers wanted to buy fewer Japanese autos because the price went up. The next step, however, was that the Japanese auto producers moved their production facilities into the United States. 
And so rather than manufacturing the cars in Japan, they started to manufacture the cars in the United States. In the context of Britain and the EU, a real risk of moving to a 10% import tariff on the EU side would be the cost would go up so much for European consumers to buy British produced cars that these Japanese auto producers in Britain would say, this is cutting into our profits so much, we need to move the production facilities all the way to the EU. Economic models tend not to look at these really big jumps of production locations because they happen more rarely. But that's a bigger risk that we do need to think about building into models. And of course, in all of this, we're asking a very specific question. What is the impact of a no-deal Brexit on UK exporters? What are the other questions that we should be considering, though, in this space? Well, so an important one that we haven't talked about at all and that we don't cover in our analysis is what access British exporters have to other markets around the world after they leave the EU. So one point is that through the EU, the British participate in a number of free trade agreements with other countries around the world. And so when they leave the EU, they lose that preferential market access. There's two issues here. We know from studies at the WTO that when there are preferential trade agreements, they're not always fully taken advantage of by the trading partners. So even though a country has a a free trade agreement, they might not trade at preferential tariff rates. And so that's something that we don't understand very well. But for firms that are using those preferential tariffs, the loss of that preferential market access could be quite damaging. Okay, so if the UK leaves the EU without a deal, then that potentially could scupper its trade deal with, say, Israel. And the companies that weren't even taking advantage of the lower tariffs that they could get under that deal won't really be affected. But the companies that were could be really hurt. Exactly. Um, And then there's other considerations. So the UK is a huge exporter of financial services and our analysis doesn't look at services. The measurement of services is more complicated and so it's a little bit more difficult to understand exactly which services are being sold. And presumably the barriers would be harder to quantify as well because it's, it's, you know, it's not a numerical tariff, it's regulations. And the quantification of an individual financial service product is also much more difficult because you sell a checking account service. You know, just very simple banking services are complicated, multidimensional products. And so defining what those individual products are is more complex. That's some of the related measurement issues. And I think we have just set ourselves up for some future episodes of Trade Talks. I think that's all from me. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. So thanks again to Professor Meredith Crowley. And in addition, Meredith's co-authors, that's Professor Giancarlo Corsetti, Oliver Exton, Luhan, all at the University of Cambridge. Happy 2018. It is great to be back. As always, please, if you are enjoying the podcast, tell all your friends about it, share it on all of the social medias. Um, And if you have any specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. On Twitter, I am at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bowne. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to doing Brexit no-deal preparations, doing only these sectoral analysis just aren't enough. Sure, looking forward to it. We're already starting in. Meredith, you're so kind. You're too kind. Just, <laughs> just look at him disapprovingly. That's what I'm doing. That's what, that's what everyone should do. 